0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Prometheus podcast, where we discuss all things macro markets and investing. I'm your host, Ahan, and I'm the founder of Prometheus Research. After an interlude in the production of the Prometheus podcast series, we're back with episode eight. As always, we have a fantastic guest for you today, Adam Butler. Adam is the CIO of Resolve Asset Management, which is a global asset manager on the cutting edge of systematic investment strategies. Adam and the team at Resolve are truly elite in their approach to systematic macro investing, so you guys are in for a real treat today. I fully expect this to be a masterclass in portfolio construction and asset allocation. I'm sure everyone will have a lot to learn. I know I definitely will. Adam, welcome to the show.
1: It's great to be here, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, happy to have you. Adam, to kick us off, why don't you briefly outline how you and the Resolve team approach markets and your broad investment objectives? Perhaps outline the kind of return streams you're looking to build and how you think about getting there and then we can dive a little deeper.
1: Yeah, that sounds good. So as you mentioned, Resolve is a systematic global macro manager. We manage ETFs, mutual funds, and performance funds in Canada, the U.S., and internationally. Um, Our flagship product is, or program, is uh, a multi-strat, macro strategy that forecasts returns to about 80 different markets futures markets um over a rise of about 1 to 5 days and we use a wide variety of different signals and and families of signals in order to generate our estimates and forecasts and um and express those those trades and we've been doing this since well we've been managing money uh, in a global macro context systematically since about uh, 2011. And we started running managed futures funds in 2017. And the team has grown pretty substantially. We currently run about $600 million US. And the vast majority of that is in our uh, futures mandates.
0: Awesome, awesome. And so you guys do have an extremely comprehensive package of systematic strategies. And so before we actually get into you know discussing strategies and how to put them together and things like that, what I think would be good for a little bit of grounding for the listener is to talk through the idea of systematic investing. Because I think a lot of people, when they hear about you know, systematic inv- investing or differential calculus formula pops into the head, it's a little bit intimidating, you don't really know what's going on. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what goes into the work, what you're trying to do, and what the benefits are of systematic investing.
1: Sure. I mean, systematic investing spans a really wide continuum of different types of strategies. For example, a an employee with an, an employee stock option plan that gets a regular allocation of shares or or options. Um is, in theory, a systematic investor, a um, an, an employee who's got a retirement plan where a certain portion of their paycheck gets allocated to a certain kind of passive portfolio uh, once or twice a month, theoretically, is a, is a systematic investor, right? Um, when we talk about systematic investing, it typically means that we're making active decisions trading decisions in markets on a fairly regular basis based on typically statistical models or technical models and we differentiate systematic from discretionary where discretionary typically has a manager or a team of managers or pns or analysts who are meeting regularly to analyze the markets maybe they they use Some models in order to inform their opinions, but ultimately they're making discretionary um, decisions about how the model is positioned. Um, Maybe not on a regular basis, maybe on an ad hoc basis. Um, And there may not be, uh, they may not follow the exact same process every time. They may not source the same uh, sources of information every time. They may not use that information in the same way every time. And whereas systematic typically, while a systematic manager can certainly, um, and in fact, I think has a mandate to continue to observe markets, identify potential new relationships that might exist, new data sources, new ways to trade, new ways to form portfolios, um, and research and update their models to reflect some of this new thinking Ultimately, on a day-to-day and potentially hour-to-hour and second-to-second basis, all of the decisions that drive positioning in the markets are um, produced by algorithms. And humans may interject to approved trades, both for um, you know just sensibility or common sense type purposes, but also for compliance reasons. But the machine and the algorithm the algorithms and the statistical models will ultimately dictate what is in the portfolio. Um and the reason why um, a firm might gravitate to systematic models, um, it could be as basic as just sort of an acknowledgement that humans, first of all, find it difficult to process the um very large dimensionality of all the different relationships that exist across markets, especially on shorter and intermediate horizons, where things are changing. There's a lot of noise, um, but also because humans often bring to the decision-making process lots of baggage. Maybe they didn't get a good night's sleep. Maybe they're fighting with their spouse. Um, maybe their child is going through something, um, or uh, maybe they, they're struggling with their position at work. You can just imagine there's a wide variety of different emotional states or contexts that a human might bring to the table from day to day and hour to hour that might affect their decision making. And a lot of the research on discretionary versus systematic decision making suggests that in many fields like investing, systematic decision making typically dominates discretionary decision making um though there are all there are always exceptions where a human monitoring markets might learn about something that has not yet been reflected in prices or understand a certain kind of risk that the market cannot effectively price and you know therefore the human might might need to inter uh, interfere but mostly systematic managers are are run by by models and um, are pretty typically automatic
0: right and and there's a there is a some amount of trade off right? like you're, like you're alluding to right that a human with a with discretionary ability to manage a mandate kind of is able to to some degree intuit and understand dynamics pretty quickly in current context but your ability to systematize those dynamics is a lot slower right to to peel back your intuition understand what it is you're saying but i think that there is also an aspect of you don't know whether that intuition in real time has a positive expectancy right does that resonate
1: yeah i mean it's difficult enough when you've got a statistical model that trades every day across dozens of markets to determine whether that statistical model has positive EV, even though you've got a very large sample size. Typically, human traders can't trade as quickly um, as computers. They can't trade as often. They can't trade as many different markets because it's difficult for a human to have a strong view on the direction of across 80 different global markets. Um, so you're just not going to have the same sample size. So that's that's certainly one major problem. And because you're a human and you're affected by all of the things that we discussed before, you can't really go back in time and test your decision making, you know, the the exact decisions that you would have made in every different historical context back through history. And so you don't have the data that might allow you to determine whether or not your discretionary process does have positive expectancy.
0: I, th- I think this is a this is a good jumping off point, and I think we've given a you know a good idea of what systematic investing kind of is. And so I think what you're trying to do broadly as a systematic investor is you're trying to you know you're trying to harness essentially three different types of return streams, which you know can be categorized broadly into. You know, beta, alpha, and somewhere in between alternative premia. And so maybe could you expand a little bit on this alpha beta continuum and how, you know, an investor navigates that landscape?
1: Yeah. So beta and alpha and risk premia um, are largely academic terms. I think it's more useful for people to kind of think about beta as being just broad passive exposure to markets, right? Sometimes people talk about beta as being exposure to stocks. Other times people talk about beta the way that the original thinkers in the space um, originally sort of defined it as being exposure to global markets on a a cap-weighted basis. But really beta is just general exposure to the stocks and bonds and potentially other instruments like currencies and commodities that are exposed to the inflation and growth dynamics that broadly drive long-term market returns, right? So beta you can typically get for free or almost for free, right? Um, Diversified beta, sometimes you've got to pay somebody to um do more thoughtful things with diversification or give you access to markets that are a little bit more esoteric, to you know commodity markets or to certain types of derivatives, for example, that hedge against certain types of inflation. Um depending on how broadly you think about diversification, that beta exposure may cost you something, though typically it doesn't cost very much. Um, Risk premia is kind of maybe the next um, extension of beta. Risk, p- risk premia are, are a beta of a different color where they're broadly understood and, and published and formalized in academic research. Uh, in theory, you know, someone with a reasonable background in finance and uh, programming could develop models that would allow you to get exposure to these risk premia, and these risk premia are typically, or alternative premia, are typically derived from um, either types of risk that are not typically considered risk that is priced under a traditional investment framework. So typically, investment um, risk is defined as volatility, right? So a an asset that is more volatile should require a higher return in order to entice investors out of a market with less volatility and therefore less variability in what your wealth is going to look like from day to day, month to month, and year to year into a market with higher volatility or higher variability of what your wealth is gonna look like from year to year. Um, Whereas You know, alternative premia sometimes derive their um, their returns from the fact that investors also have preferences that price different kinds of risks. So, for example, maybe investors don't like to experience a lot of experience returns that are really different than most of their peer group, right? And that might arise from, uh, or that might give rise to an alternative premium. Uh, other alternative premiums exist, for example, because, well, let's look at the carry premium. So in carry, you have a group of typically speculators in futures markets that will take on risk from the producers of those commodities. The producers of the commodities. They know they're gonna produce a certain amount of that commodity. They want to lock in the price that they are gonna be able to sell that commodity for at some point in the future, next quarter, next year, what have you. Um, Their ability to lock in that price dramatically lowers the volatility of of their earnings over time. When their earnings has a lower volatility, Typically, it means that when they go out to equity and debt markets to raise capital, to invest in new projects, that capital comes at a lower cost. And therefore, it is economically sensible for commodity producers to sell forward their production to have a lower cost of capital and a more um, uh, forecastable series of of earnings in the future, Um, but then they will pay a cost for doing that. They paid that cost to the speculator who who bears that risk for them, right? So those who invest in a carry alternative style premium are bearing that risk on behalf of commodity producers, but it's also a win-win. The commodity producers have a lower cost of capital and the carry um, speculators Earn a risk premium, right? So, so typically alt-style premia, well formalized, they have well-defined rules that are published that anybody can find, um, and they derive their returns from risks and other structural factors that give rise to systematic return streams, but that can't be easily explained by a traditional definition of risk just related to the volatility of the return stream.
0: And then from there, we start getting into the very interesting and intriguing world of alpha, right? Which um, I think on some level, you could argue that at one point in time, a lot of these alternative premiers, you know, due to the lack of knowledge. So I think that when you think about alpha and active investing, there's partly like how much structural alpha is there in, in terms of how much capacity to extract an alpha and then how much... You know, knowledge asymmetry is there. like how many, how concentrated is knowledge? And you know, if you have a good balance between the two, that's what allows you to extract alpha from the market, right? And so I think that a lot of these alt premiers, you know, are just things that are structurally large, right? So you, so so a large number of players are able to extract this premium. But maybe a a decade ago, or two decades ago, a lot of these all premiers were actually alphas. So I think that, you know, as we start getting into, you know. Alpha, how do you kind of think of that in context of, you know, the evolution of all premia and how you extract alpha in markets on a dynamic basis?
1: Yeah, I mean, Ahan, I think you framed it well in the beginning. It's sort of a continuum between beta through alt risk premia to alphas, right? And I actually wrote an article many years ago called Alpha is in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it nails exactly what you just said, Right. Um, If you're an unsophisticated retail investor, then and and you have no way to run a diversified carry strategy uh, on your own, then a manager that is running a diversified carry strategy looks like alpha to you. It's not something you can access. Certainly, you can't access it cheaply. You can't run it by yourself. Um, So, you know, to... Most retail investors, a uh, managed speaker strategy or carry strategy, um, most long short or market neutral kind of strategies uh, look like alpha to them, right? If you're a sophisticated pension plan or sovereign wealth fund or endowment, um, you probably have the capacity to be able to hire a quant team and develop your own old style premium strategies and run them in house, right? So there's no cost above the cost of, you know, the trading and commissions that you pay and whatever the um, marginal cost of the salaries of your investment team, there's there's only a negligible cost to a large institution for running many um, of these alt-style premium strategies, right? Now, importantly, 10 years ago, there was no published literature on the carry premium. There was very little published literature on most alt-style premium strategies. So um, you had to have some experience in the markets or some intuition or be able to do your own research in order to identify these alternative sources of return. And that looked a lot more like alpha, right? Now today, when there's so much research on it that's published, most people kind of know the general rules. There's still a great deal of expertise required in order to understand what data is required and how to transform it. There's obviously some programming experience. There's portfolio um, construction type experience, um, but most of the rules are accessible and a reasonably experienced investor could conceivably go and just follow the rules and generate some, most of the premium, right? Alpha is, uh, are typically sources of return that are not well published in the literature, um, Typically. They may have um, poor intuition. You know, maybe the they arise from unexpected phenomena in markets. You need to have a specialized understanding of the underlying market dynamics in order to be able to identify uh, and exploit the relationships. Um, sometimes alpha is a function of uh, just higher levels of analytical competency. Maybe you you know you've got. A set of PhDs on your team or mathematicians on your team that are able to scrutinize or analyze um, data that lots of people are already using, but use that data in a different way. Maybe instead of using linear models that are typical in um, the formalized old style premium uh, strategies, you're using highly nonlinear models or more sophisticated techniques to model the response functions. That type of thing. Um, maybe you're relying on much more sophisticated infrastructure because you're you're trading on a at a higher frequency, and there's skill, therefore, in you know co-location, trade monitoring, trade management at such a high frequency, that kind of stuff, right? Um, so there's there's a wide variety of different dimensions to where you can source alpha, and oftentimes, like my my uh, partner Mike likes to say. Alpha lives where you don't want to go. So, you know, it's in it's uncomfortable, esoteric areas of the market. Uh, it's employing techniques that are hard to understand, maybe the underlying models, you can't look into them and know exactly how they're operating. And so there's there's discomfort on a wide variety of dimensions that that discourages many players from allocating to them, right? So, they and they often have lower capacity, right? So, you know, the more you go into pure alpha, um, oftentimes each of the individual alphas have limited capacity. And if you want to run a high capacity alpha program, you need to run them on a wide variety of alphas on a wide variety of markets. and And that way you can generate more capacity. And, you know, a lot of the more successful. Alt style premium or, or alpha style businesses run on a wide variety of markets with a very large ensemble of different potential alphas, and that's why they're able to run several billion dollars.
0: Right, and I'd like to kind of highlight the the, the capacity issue because I think you know a lot of people, especially when you know you're listening to a uh, more systematically inclined podcast, there's always uh, the the hints of alpha and the you know kind of the. The wink and the nudge kind of about this is you know how we're thinking about alpha but there's never ever an explicit discussion and this is the reason because most alphas especially if they are you know high quality alphas tend to be constrained in their capacity and so the more you know knowledge that you have around the subject the more flow this alpha will receive which actually compresses the alpha over time and so i think that you know what we're really trying to do usually by keeping alpha locked away is trying to preserve it and you know i'm i'm sure that you and i can really get deep into alpha and i'm sure the listener would be very excited to hear all about that but i think uh, like all things we have to go through the progression of things so maybe we can start by kind of uh, go, you know circling back we've laid out the landscape you know between alpha alt and beta maybe we can start with kind of the beta landscape so I think what I've always found very unique about you guys at Resolve is that you have a really keen understanding of the macroeconomic intuitions that drive betas, and so maybe you can, you know, kick off our discussion on beta by talking about what are the principal drivers of returns and like why are you trying to find balance between those drivers?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, I want to caveat something that you that you said about um, how alpha is typically perceived to be scarce and beta is typically perceived to be abundant. Right. And, you know, if too many people are chasing the same alphas, then the magnitude of, uh, of that alpha is probably going to shrink over time. Right. I think what's missed by many people is that that's also true of betas. Right. So, you know, if the government or if the banking system creates, um, an enormous amount of liquidity and that liquidity has, um, is not being utilized in the, in the economy through investment, then it needs to flow. It needs to, it, it, it stays somewhere. It stays in the financial system, right? And as it stays in the financial system, it needs to be invested in something, right? People don't just don't, they don't hide it under their mattress, they keep it in the bank, or they keep it in money market funds, or they invest it in bonds or stocks. And as they invest it in bonds and stocks, the, you know, the flows into those bonds and stocks raise the levels of those, uh, of those assets. And mechanically, as you raise the, the levels of those assets, all things equal, you are gonna lower the expected return. On those, uh, on those same assets. And so, you know, it's not like beta stocks and bonds markets don't go through the same kinds of cycles, ebbs and flows of high return environments and low return environments, and for the same reason as alphas, right? It just is um, no matter how, what you're investing in, um, more flows reduces the opportunity set, less flows, increases the opportunity set and that's generally true everywhere right so um, sorry just to I'll interject yeah, so yeah. You can, you can
0: because on. uh i i only only to interject because i were in violent agreement on this subject and i spent some time thinking about this and really you know i think that you know the returns on any asset really just boils down to do these two things because when you invest in an asset you are being compensated for a risk even if it's an alpha even if it's really high quality, high shop ratio, you're still being compensated for taking on a risk. And you are being compensated by another party's losses in some way, shape or form. And so there is a balance between the amount of information asymmetry and the amount of structural asymmetry there is in the buyers and sellers of the asset. And so as a result, betas, I think, this is, you know, when I reflect on beta, beta is just something that has an immense amount of capacity relative to other styles of investing. And so I'm in total agreement.
1: I agree. Yeah. So let's let's leave it there for now. Yeah. So what drives beta returns, mm-hmm. right? Well, um, there are some really good books out there, but they end up being under, uh, under-read and under-appreciated. Um, so let's acknowledge that over time, higher risk, higher volatility assets typically require a higher return. Lower risk assets typically require a lower return, right? So one of the drivers of uh, return is the underlying risk. Um, The question is what drives changes in returns over time, right? So at any given moment in time, investors are looking at the opportunity set and um, they are pricing what they currently see. So, you know, um, they're, they have a certain outlook for growth. They have a certain outlook for inflation. Um, their outlook for growth is going to inform the trajectory for expected earnings. It's probably also going to factor into their models for inflation and therefore um, bond yields. And so at any given moment in time, both bonds and stocks, every market everywhere um, is largely priced based on the market's current forecast for inflation and growth. So when do asset prices change? Well, they change when the realized trajectory of inflation or growth deviates from the expected path that had previously been priced, right? So if there's a shock higher for some reason in growth, there's a larger GDP print than expected, a real GDP print than expected. There's a shock higher or lower in inflation in terms of you know, pick your favorite inflation metric, and there's a, a, a surprise higher or lower. That affects everybody's um, expected trajectory for growth and inflation, and then they will adjust asset their mix of asset prices to reflect reflect that change in trajectory, right? So the major drivers of changes in asset prices over time are changes, unexpected shocks, to growth and inflation, right? What's important to understand is that different asset class categories mechanically respond to shocks to growth and inflation in very different ways. So we would expect mechanically for equities, for example, all things equal, if there's a shock higher in growth expectations, that means that earnings expectations for companies are, are likely to be higher than expected, which means that all things equal, you should raise the price of equities to discount that higher future earnings growth, right? Sure. Um, if inflation comes in higher than expected, means interest rates are likely to be higher than expected and bond yields should rise and bond prices should therefore fall to reflect that um, deviation in expectations, right? Commensurately, there are other markets that respond in different ways, but let's sort of dwell for a minute on stocks and bonds. Stocks do well typically during periods of higher than expected growth, benign inflation. Bonds do well during periods of Stable growth and lower than expected inflation. No one, or neither stocks nor bonds, are expected to do well during periods of higher than expected inflation. And, you know, we're lucky because we have a really great example of how both stocks and bonds respond to upward inflation shocks, right? 2022 is a really good example. Obviously inflation came in much higher than the market had expected and both bonds and stocks um, corrected accordingly. Why did stocks correct? Because for the longest time, you know even now we're really not seeing dramatic changes in expectations for corporate earnings. but another thing that that impacts um, equity pricing is that discount rate on future earnings, right? The discount rate, is related to the rate on government bonds. So as government bonds rise, the discount rate that that must be used to discount future earnings goes up, and therefore the present value of equities goes down. Right, And so that's how inflation typically impacts um, equities. Now, there are environments where real growth in the economy may outweigh the fact that there's higher than expected inflation. And so even though discount rates go up, which normally would cause equity prices to go down, if earnings expectations go up even more than what is priced for the increase in discount rates, you can still have a rally in equities, right? And all of these are prices in real terms, so net of inflation. So you can still have a, a, a time period where equities are appear to be going up in nominal terms because they have high nominal growth, but those um, rises in equities still are not outpacing or they're trailing the increase in inflation. And therefore, in real terms, those equity values are declining, right? So just to sort of sum it all up, uh, what drives asset prices, inflation and growth? Bonds and stocks both react negatively to increases in inflation, which Prompts the question, what does well during periods of inflation? Typically during inflationary episodes, it's driven by something, right? Maybe there's a supply shock in a key commodity, or there's a supply shock in the broad supply chain. We kind of saw a little bit of both in 2021 leading to 2020 and 2021, partly leading to the inflation spike that we saw, right? Mm-hmm. Um so because of that, typically commodities will rise during an inflation shock. That may that They may rise um, before the inflation shock and be a cause of the inflation shock, or potentially they may rise coincident with it, or even as a lagging term, because investors are going to buy commodities to hedge some of their inflation risk, right? Um, you can also have inflation where the supply of everything stays the same, but there's a major demand shock. You know, something we also saw in 2020 2021 is that governments around the world printed an enormous amount of money and they deposited that money directly in people's bank accounts. And therefore, those people were able to take that money and spend it directly on the things that they wanted and needed, right? So that represented a major one-time demand shock. And that was another thing that contributed to the rise in inflation, right? That also might be um, a reason for commodities to rise, right? You've got consumers with a lot more money. Maybe they're gonna be driving more places. Maybe they're gonna be buying more appliances and need more metals. Um, Maybe they're gonna be buying more meats and, and vegetables and consuming more grains, et cetera. So, you know, there's the demand side. Um, And different types of markets would be expected to do well in demand side versus supply side inflation shocks, right? So you want to have a wide variety of different inflation types of instruments. And then another type of inflation is where the uh, government decides that they're going to devalue their currency uh, and or uh, citizens of a country or citizens, uh, citizens of the world begin to lose faith in the credibility of the central bank, which, in, at least in the U.S., in partnership with the Treasury, is responsible for um, preserving the value of the currency. And that kind of inflationary environment usually demands something a little bit different. Gold has historically uh, hysterically, historically been a um, a good hedge against a loss of confidence in a currency, right? The point being, you a diversified portfolio can't just hold stocks, can't just hold bonds, can't just hold stocks and bonds. It also needs to hold a diversified basket of commodities, treasury inflation-protected securities and potentially other more esoteric types of derivatives and gold in order to hedge against the wide variety of different inflation shocks that might occur and, and might be disruptive to both bonds and equities.
0: So, totally agree. Um, and. I guess there are two subsets, right? Uh, two subsets of questions that come to mind. So I, I think that uh, one thing that is fairly intuitive for anybody to understand is to understand why there is some sort of risk premium to owning equities and bonds, you know, because you're buying the equities cheap to their fair value over the next 20, 30, 50, 60, 100 years. And, you know, hopefully if the company delivers on that expected value, you know, you, you earn that premium, right? Now, I think, and the same goes with, with with treasury bonds because you have an inflation problem, you don't have a creditworthiness problem, so you get a little bit lower expected return, lower volatility. I think those things are fairly intuitive. One thing that has always bothered me, you know, in terms of thinking about this conceptual conceptually is there isn't a perfect parallel when it comes to thinking about commodities like this. Right? And so I wonder how you think about holding a basket of commodities and whether you think that there is a premium associated with holding commodities themselves, or you think it just comes from futures, which are just a financial instrument used to leverage these spot commodities?
1: If you examine the returns, to, the long-term returns of spot commodities, they have very low or zero return over the long term. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, you you typically can't gain exposure to commodities, except perhaps gold and silver, um, directly. So most people gain their exposure to commodities through futures, and there are qualities of futures that um, can generate a return through roll down, um, storage premium, etc. Um, the other thing that many people miss is that commodities, while they're um, you know they're all kind of bucketed together in one asset class, have an enormous amount of diversity, right? So um, if you look at the S and P five hundred, or the Nasdaq, or even the the FTSE in the UK, or the DAX in Germany, or the Nikkei in in Japan, um, the vast majority of the daily, weekly, and monthly you know variations in all of those other markets can be mostly explained by variations in the S and P. They're all very highly correlated to one another, um, and and that's because they're all largely driven by the same macroeconomic reasons, right? Uh, changes to growth and, and inflation in general, right? No, there's also ch- differences in growth and inflation from country to country. But the world is so globalized now that, you know, typically, with the exception of a few countries that are still, you know, they have capital controls or, you um, they're 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 very they're more self-sufficient than other countries. India is kind of an example. Of, um, the general earnings of corporate global corporate uh, agents are tied to the global economy, not just to their domestic economy, right? So there's a common kind of risk driver. Um, inflation tends to be linked from country to country for the same reasons. There's obviously idiosyncrasies. Some countries produce commodities, others don't and consume them. That's going to make a, a big difference. Different countries are have different fiscal and monetary policies that affect their currencies and inflation expectations in different ways. But But there is this common kind of global inflation beta, so to speak, right? Commodities are much more diverse in what influences the change in their prices, right? The supply and demand dynamics for Uh, for energies are very different than the supply and demand dynamics for corn or palm oil or rubber or uh, robusta coffee uh, or um, gold and silver, you know? So, when you look at, let's say there's uh, 35 different commodities. Well, when you take their correlations into account, they probably represent 15 or 20 different uncorrelated sources of return. Whereas if you look at, 25 global equity markets, they might represent in total kind of two uncorrelated sources of return, right? Why does this matter? Well, it's because when you put the commodities together in the portfolio, they diversify each other to such a great extent that the volatility of holding a diversified basket of commodities is much, much lower than the volatility of holding any of the individual commodities. And because of this, there is um, something called the diversification premium that exists by virtue of the fact that you're rebalancing this portfolio um, consistently in order to maintain an optimal diversification among all the different uh, constituents of the portfolio. And this rebalancing generates returns over time using a phenomenon called Shannon's demon. Um, which we probably don't have time to get into. Um, so, just to summarize, futures have qualities that that will generate returns on their own anyway. And when, because of the diversity of the of the commodity space, when you hold them all in a portfolio and rebalance them regularly, they also generate returns. We wrote a paper called um, "The Rebalancing Premium" uh, a year or two ago, which quantifies the size of this commodity premium at the same level of volatility as equities and shows that it's approximately the same as what the uh, long-term equity risk premium has been so you know there's there's every reason to invest in a diversified basket of commodities alongside uh, equities and bonds importantly though you can't just hold them all in equal weight in the portfolio because they have very different risk profiles
0: so you, you front ran my, my next question, which was, okay, I'm sold. Commodity is extremely diversifying within themselves and then within the broader portfolio. That's probably a futures risk premium. Um, and that's probably a cash recapture element with owning commodity futures, right? So between these three, I'm sold. I'd like to buy them. Do I just one third of my portfolio in each one of these things, find a decent commodity manager? How do you think about that problem?
1: Well, yeah. So when you put a diversified basket of commodities together with a diversified um, set of global equity indices, for example, or a diversified basket of global stocks, along with a diversified basket of bonds, what you see is that commodities are about 50% more volatile than equities. And equities are about uh, three times as volatile as, as a global bond index and so if you just hold them all together in equal weight then you have a phenomenon where we like to say the lunatics run the asylum where equities and commodities are gyrating so much from day to day and week to week that if you look at the uh, gyrations of the bond returns you can barely see that they're moving right and what that means is that even though the bonds are moving at different times for different reasons and are very uncorrelated with the stocks and commodities, they don't have an opportunity to express their unique character. To allow all of the different markets to express their unique characters, you need to make sure that they all are expressing the same amount of risk in the portfolio. What that means is that very low risk bonds need to have a larger proportion of portfolio capital relative to equities and commodities. And if you if you structure that appropriately, then, All of the different markets are able to express their unique properties and are able to make the portfolio pretty darn resilient to most economic environments. The exception is, of course, an environment where uh, global central banks surprisingly make cash a lot more favorable relative to holding risky assets, and at which point it sucks capital out of risky assets of all types and into cash instruments obviously raising the value of cash lowering the value of risky risky assets
0: right and so i think that begets the question um if i've if i've already got this portfolio that you know is well balanced well diversified across geographies and you know well constructed why do i need to go further and you know you you got to the heart of the matter which is that even this well diversified portfolio has limitations and so you can tell me what if you think this characterization of this kind of portfolio is correct essentially you're picking up a global economic cycle risk premium in, in in some sense but that risk premium is compensation for essentially taking risk over cash right so you're you're moving from cash to assets and you're being compensated for taking on that risk but At some time, at some point in the economic cycle, you have to pay the Pipo. that that risk comes to fruition. And I think that that's really what brings us kind of to the alternative premier world, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I would say that um, if you're invested in a diversified portfolio of global equities, global bonds, and global commodities, you know, maybe a loop in some inflation-protected securities... um, you are very well hedged against economic cycle risk. What you cannot hedge against... I mean, so that portfolio doesn't go up in a straight line. So why not? Well, one reason is because there is noise trading in the market, right? So there are people that um, actually don't have any edge, but they're constantly turning over their portfolio, or maybe they're having to sell for structural reasons, like, you know, they need to go buy a house or they want to consume something or they need to go on, they want to go on vacation or they're retired and they're pulling money from markets. Um, so, so you've got people that are coming in and out of the market from day to day in general, you've also got sentiment risk. So the market goes on these phases of from, you know, irrational exuberance to irrational pessimism. And that causes a fluctuation that is, uh, largely random and and, and difficult to price. Um, But none of those, those should typically kind of balance out over over intermediate horizons. What can't be hedged or what doesn't necessarily balance out over horizons that matter to investors is this risk of a policy mistake by central banks. So this past cycle is a really good example. If central banks um do not anticipate a major inflation shock a shock and do not signal to markets that they have identified this and are you know going to take steps very early in the process you can get into a situation where the market loses faith in the in the credibility of the fed and begins to price in a wild amount of inflation and then the Fed needs to move much, much further in raising expected cash rates in order to get market expectations for inflation back to the, an equilibrium level that is tolerable to the Fed, and which the Fed perceives to be optimal for, for growth going forward. And so that's largely what we saw in 2020, 21, 22. The Fed got way behind the curve. The markets perceived that there was going to be an inflation shock. They didn't feel that the Fed was credible in fighting it because the Fed said they didn't believe it in the first place. Remember the transitory talk. Um, And so markets got way ahead of themselves in pricing a major inflation shock without a credible Fed intervention. And then the Fed came in and became far more credible than the market expected, raised cash rates far beyond what the market expected, in a much shorter time period than anyone would have anticipated and that caused um, all of global markets both stocks bonds and commodities to reprice lower so they repriced higher at a much higher rate than they should have and then they repriced lower and so you know that ended up feeling like a major loss in wealth but in reality all it was is the markets you know pricing in Far too much inflation, and then needing to to ratchet back those expectations. And I suspect that if you were to, you know, thirty years from now, look back over this period, you'll find that yeah, there was a lot of volatility, but really this diversified portfolio just kind of went right through the middle of it mm-hmm. over the long term and kept moving up upwards along its normal trajectory.
0: Right, and I I think that you know that's an important thing for the vast you know probably 90% of, of most, you know, day to day average investors, this diversified portfolio is probably one of the best things that, you know, you can kind of start thinking about moving towards. But I think that, you know, as active investors, we're always trying to optimize and go a little bit further and even, you know, avoid drawdowns or potentially even, you know, profit from these shocks, right. And so I think that that's where, you know, Alternative Premier, the one that really comes to mind based off the example that you've given was, uh, you know, trend or momentum strategies over the last year, right? So how do you think about integrating those kind of strategies into this diversified mix?
1: Well, I think you nailed the focus, which is diversification, right? I think a lot of people sort of think about um, the fact that, that emotionally, they really want to have all their, their assets and equities, right? Because that's how they got a, the best shot at keeping up with the, the, the cocktail party chatter that they're going to experience in their normal day-to-day life, right? They just Most people just don't want to be left behind, right? Um, and so when they think about diversification, it's sort of like, well you know, how can I have my cake and eat it too? How can I have this equity risk so I don't fall behind in my cocktail party um, chatter, but I can add some strategies to it. Like I'm gonna do a trend strategy or a trend overlay on my equity exposure or, you know, some other nonsense like that. So I can try to have my cake and eat it too, right? Um, The idea should be to get as much diversification in the portfolio as possible, right? Yeah, equities are gonna have a return premium commensurate with their risk. Bonds are gonna have a lower communi- return premium commensurate with their risk. Commodities are gonna have a return premium commensurate with their risk. But also there there is this, this, this wide array of other alt style premium and potentially alphas that are probably gonna to continue to generate um, returns. They're generating those returns for very different reasons than equities and bonds and commodities generate their long-term returns. For that reason, they're not correlated. Doesn't mean they're anti-correlated, doesn't mean that they're hedges, just means that they're uncorrelated with stocks and bonds and and commodities. And the more of these uncorrelated return streams that you can put together or stack on in a portfolio, the higher your expected return per unit of risk in the portfolio. in all likelihood the less likely that you're going to be susceptible to this kind of this cyclical risk that you get with a traditional kind of 60/40 balance portfolio or an equity heavy portfolio right mm-hmm. so yeah there's lots of these different types of alternative premia right there's um, there's this kind of value premia there's uh, low vol or anti or uh, low beta type premia there's momentum or trend or carry or uh, seasonality or relative value or skewness, or there's a wide variety of different types of alternative strategies that you can allocate to that you know, you've know you got pretty well as much confidence in their ability to generate long-term performance as you do in stocks and bonds and commodities, but they're just uncorrelated and therefore every one that you add to the portfolio makes it more efficient and makes it less likely to underperform your require the return that you require to get on that portfolio in order to achieve your financial objectives over your finite investment horizon
0: right and the way I think that we you know think at Prometheus the way we think about generally these all premier they're all different versions at least the directional strategies so essentially the ones that go long or short something there are volatility strategies which is a separate area of discussion but i think that generally you're, you're trying to do one of two things you're trying to allocate either pro cyclically with an asset or you're trying to allocate in some way counter cyclically with an asset you only essentially have two options and so what you're trying to do while you do these things is also you're trying to extract some amount of premium which is not related to market risk. And I think that what you're alluding to with you know an overlay versus extracting this pr- pure premium is that you know that your your expected returns are linked to the relationship that you're isolating as opposed to picking up some kind of hidden beta. And I think that that is the diversification characteristic that you're really looking for, right? You're looking for a set of things which, if you know, an ideal world, you can create a a combination of pro-cyclical and counter-cyclical strategies that both have positive expected value. And these are, can be extremely meaningfully diversifying to an existing beta portfolio. And I think that leads me into a concept that you guys have talked about a lot, which I found, you know, very interesting and eloquently put, which is this idea of ensembles. So maybe you can, you know, expand on that idea a little bit.
1: Sure. I mean, as, as we discussed in the beginning, you know, even quantitative strategies that are derived from statistical models with active trading, let's say you're going to, you're going to trade every day. Um, It is extremely difficult to determine the statistical significance. In other words, um, is is this long-term profit that I observed was generated from this model um, an artifact of some long-term to be pattern or, or a structural relationship between the signal I'm using to trade and the market that I'm trading and that will persist over time? Or is it just an artifact of the fact that I've run thousands of these types of tests and just by virtue of randomness, I'm going to stumble on a large number of strategies that seem like they are um, real and persistent and sustainable over time, but that actually are just statistical anomalies, right? So it's because it's difficult to choose between different um, types of signals and just sort sort of to dwell on trend for a second. So let's say you've got strong confidence that trend is a dynamic that's at work in markets and it's predictive, and and therefore is a source of edge with positive expected value over time. Um, How do you define that trend, you know? Do you go to the data and find which which trend specification, what do I mean by that? Um, The returns over the last 20 days, the returns over the last 120 days, the difference between two moving averages, you know, the extent to which a market is above its, its high over the past 20 days. Um, so there's a wide variety of different ways to, to, both, to measure trend and, and to specify it. Well, because there's a wide variety of ways and there's no statistical way to determine which one is the best. The second best thing is to create models based on all of these different types of trend specifications and use them all. And the benef- one of the benefits of that is that, you know, 20 day return trend has a very low correlation actually with one year return trend. Um, different trend specifications like breakout or moving average uh, have low correlation with one another. And so you've got kind of an equal amount of confidence that each of these trend signals will do what you expect it to do over time, but when you put it all together, you get this expected return, but with a lot lower risk, um, both in terms of volatility and in terms of just choosing the wrong trend specification based on spurious statistical methods, right? So this is the idea of Ensemble. There are a wide variety of equally viable ways to harness a kind of edge that's built models on all of those different reasonable specifications, and then use all of those models together to help to determine which direction we should be trading each day in which, in which market. Oh, and by the way, you know, it's more than just um, a wide variety of different models. The universe of markets itself is an ensemble, right? If we were to look at any in trading our full ensemble of um, edges, which are over 250 edges on any individual market in our universe of 80 odd markets, the performance is not so good. You know, it, it, it's, it spans from kind of like a 0.1 sharp to maybe a 0.8 sharp. But even that, if I were to just allocate to the highest, the market with the highest sharp ratio from trading our signals, uh, that actually is not a very good signal about which market is gonna go on and outperform in the future, All right, So you need, to, you need to allocate to all of these different markets, all of the different models on all of these markets in order to build confidence that you're gonna be able to generate these long-term returns. Um, so it's it's diversification across every conceivable dimension that eventually builds towards a strategy that you can have, you know, a high level of confidence is going to deliver over the long term.
0: Absolutely. And I think that um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a very elegant and kind of platonic sort of idea that you're trying to extract what is in this particular case, like the purest form of trend, which is that it is a phenomena that isn't necessarily defined just by 20 day price action right and it can it can vary a class say a year could be a year and a half it could be a few days it could be a moving average crossover it could be some sort of relative strength index it could be all these different versions but if you're really trying to extract that true trend beta having this um having this ensemble approach is probably the purest way of extracting it and i think that um you know, there's there's probably some amount of like computational alpha in the fact that you guys can do this relative to other people who may not be able to have that computational edge. But th- I think that you know, setting that aside, I assume everyone can do it, right? Um, I think that that's really what you're getting at. And I think a parallel of how to look at it is kind of like when you choose to buy Microsoft versus the index, you're making an active choice to 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 lose that diversity diversity to gain this con- concentrated exposure. And so I think that that's a really nice segue, actually, because there are times to make that decision. Um, And I think that, you know, that's really where the alpha landscape kind of comes in. But you need to have a body of evidence as to why you're making that decision that you, you know, think has a positive expectancy, right? So you find this ensemble. Can you actually, with good reasons, good intuition, and some sort of, you know, durable signal, say that, no, this is how we distill our trend signal into this one trend or component of trend, right? And that brings us kind of to the alpha discussion. And so I think, you know, to kick off the alpha discussion, we in a separate podcast in a different context kind of talked about my ideas of alpha, which is that alpha is in, you know, sort of nonlinearity, right? And so I wanted you to riff on that idea a little bit.
1: Yeah. So nonlinearity is, uh, Complicated concept, right? Um, I think a good way to kind of start thinking about nonlinearity is through conditionality, right? So um, when a market is in a positive trend and employment, the you know the the, the six month moving average of employment is positive what is the expected return on the market versus when the market is in a positive trend and the six-month moving average of employment is negative. And then you can see that there's four different states there, right? Well, those conditionalities make the analysis a little bit more complicated and it also um, behooves the analyst to have a more rigorous understanding of the causal Elements that drive those different conditional effects, right? Um, You know, I would say that nonlinearity kind of falls under the category of analytical alpha, right? I mean, there's really two kinds of alpha. Either you know something that the market doesn't, you have information asymmetry, or you have a better analytical framework or computational framework than than average in the market, right? Um, So I would sort of loop that into the analytical Mm -hmm. uh, framework, right? So you've got, it's a more sophisticated relationship, so you need a more rigorous and robust analytical framework, Um, but everybody has access to those, to the inflation and price trend data, Right. So you don't have any informational edge. The only informational edge you might have is in your the intuition you have about that, those conditional relationships, and then your ability to model them in a statistically robust way.
0: Mm-hmm. And so I guess, um, you know, with those caveats in mind, how do you guys kind of go into, you know, n- not necessarily going into your own alpha construction, how would you roughly go about one saying can we trust signal generation and two how do you go about kind of thinking about maintaining signal integrity over time and understanding whether your edge has kind of disappeared or been compressed because i think that that's the whole pursuit of alpha right it's a dynamic process
1: yeah so i mean that that's a black hole yeah. that we we could spend the rest of our lives <laughs> discussing frankly yeah. um well, let's start with the idea that we have an intuition that past price changes at past price uh, inform changes in future price over the next few days, maybe weeks. Um, but we don't know how past price informs future price. So you need to derive a model that's gonna use the value of past price to forecast the price moving over some forecast horizon, let's say, over the next five days. Um, To think like a data scientist, you say, well, I'm going to take some segments of my data, and use that segment to build a model. The model will, and and there's a wide variety of different models that you can use. Um, You can use linear models, you can use non-linear models, and if you use, well, there's a variety of linear models, and there's a, a much, much larger variety of nonlinear models, right? So you need to choose some different models. You might choose a variety of different models, ensemble your model types. <clears throat> um, in any event, you're going to model the response of this market over the next five days on whatever you know the, the past return was. The past return was very low. What happened over the next five days the past return was somewhat low what happened over the next five days so you build that model on some some sub segment of the data
0: mm-hmm.
1: and once you form that model on that sub segment of the data you apply it to um, data in a segment that the model didn't see when it was being built mm-hmm. right and then you see how it performed and if you really the question of how do you build expectations or intuition about how well you can model the response function of different markets? You just generalize that process mm-hmm. using best practices in data science mm-hmm. um, to generate a full out of sample simulation um, that for all markets and all models, which put together you know, how does that perform when you specify your models on some segment of the data and you apply them out of sample? How does it perform? Mm -hmm. Um, If you do that segmenting in a wide variety of different ways and the performance is basically the same in all of those different out of sample segments, then that gives you reasonably high confidence that the Models and the sources of information and the edges that you are that you're sourcing uh, are persistent over the long term. They 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 didn't change um, in total in aggregate. They didn't change from segment to segment um, using information. One segment is is useful. Now there's lots of different techniques that you need to use in order to build robust models. Mm. Um, which again is a whole, you know, PhD thesis,
0: right? Yeah, we'll have um, to have a few of the the, the, the podcast for that.
1: Yeah, but it's but we both know that, that that's not trivial. Yeah. But but in, in essence, that is the that's the way you do it, right? You build models on data, then you apply those models to data that it hasn't seen, and you see how they do. You mm-hmm. do that over and over and over again across a wide variety of different in-sample and out-of-sample periods. And you determine whether the models that you're specifying are robust and durable across, you know, a wide variety of regimes. If your if if some of your signals are detecting regimes, then it will also tell you: Are the signals that you're using to detect regimes do they uh, sustain? Are they durable across a wide variety of regimes? A challenge with regime detection, especially sort of Economic cycle regime detection is that you have such a small sample size, right? You got, you know, even if you go back to the nineteen eighties, you got what seven, eight, nine. Yeah, nineteen eighties,
0: you probably have five.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, if you expand that to, you know, used to be that Europe had a, was on yeah. a slightly different cycle than the U.S. Yeah, you had a market cycle, so you know maybe you can kind of subsample test. But you can mess around with something in the cross section or something
0: right? like that, and but. No, I, I'm all too familiar with the small samples problem in 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 economic data stuff. It's uh, it's what I spend most of my <laughs> time trying to figure out how we can kind of you know expand that out. Um, but yeah, no, I I totally agree with with everything you're saying. I think that the last kind of uh, to kind of loop the discussion um, is when you're packaging these alphas, right? I think that sizing is a little bit different than sizing beta because when you, you you get into the world of alpha you do get into the world of conviction right and so you know what is it in conceptually that you guys think about in terms of in terms of conviction sizing versus just risk sizing which is probably you know something that's more for beta and conviction sizing is something if you you know have a constant edge where you, you know, which doesn't exist but if you had a constant edge that you would size based on conviction how do you balance those two
1: I mean, we—the answer is we just don't—we don't, we don't um, allocate risk based on conviction, at in terms of choosing models or choosing markets, right? Mm-hmm. The trades are allocated by the conviction of the underlying models, right? Mm-hmm. But trying to determine which models or models trading on which markets to trade is a hard problem, right? Now how you size kind of alt style premia versus, you know, global market exposure. I mean, I will say that even for U.S. equities, which everybody seems to feel like is the most sustainable, reliable, durable um, risk premium, you know, you do have 30 year stretches where the real return is zero and and 30 year stretches where the real return is 15%, right? A 30 year stretch, is uh, you know a 50 percent longer than many retirement horizons, and about as long as most people have to save in their working lives. So, now this is even for equities, the most robust, reliable equity market in the world. You know, there's still an enormous amount of variability in what we've observed historically in those returns, right? Um, I personally don't have any more faith in the performance of equities or bonds or commodities than I have in global trend or global carry or you know the other uh, alpha sources that we harness, which is why I you know I personally am of the opinion that we should have you know equal risk allocated to global equities, global bonds, global commodities, global trend, global carry, global value, global relative value, global seasonality, blah, 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 as many different um, alpha sources as you can find. My feeling is now the reality is most people can't do that. I mean, large institutions can't do that. There's not enough capacity in global trend Mm -hmm. for, you know, every sovereign wealth fund or even one sovereign wealth fund to put their entire hundred billion dollar portfolio in global trend. Obviously, they would create all global trends from that point forward. Right. So, you know, we often make the case that um, small the intermediate size investors have the best set of, the best opportunity set for investing. Small institutions, sort of the sub-billion dollar range probably has the widest opportunity set. There, They've got enough capital to afford to hire you know, a team of relatively sophisticated people to choose managers, to identify the different sleeves that they want to allocate to, to monitor the portfolio, et cetera, but they're not so big that they can't really allocate a substantial amount to a wide variety of these alternative premium, right? Um, So again, really, my answer is always diversify to the maximum extent that is practical and sensible.
0: That is that. That's sage advice. So I think um, you know we've we've kind of covered the entire spectr- spectrum of all the different types of return streams that you can invest, and kind of you know giving you broad strokes how you can think about combining those. Uh, one of them is to go over to resolve. Um, and I think uh, in that you know with that framework in mind, I think that we can start talking a little bit about what you're seeing today based off how signals are firing and. What do you really see in the current context? You've already talked a little bit about, you know, the equity picture and how you don't think that's very good. What do you think over, you know, both first reflecting, you know, looking back before looking forward, we can kind of reflect a little bit on the importance of the approach that you've laid out in kind of dealing with, say, like the last year, and then looking ahead, what you think is really important for investors to think about in a potentially kind of stagflationary world?
1: Yeah. My general case as we look out over the next three to five years is that inflation will sustain um, at an above average rate. But the even higher conviction position is that inflation is going to be much more volatile over the next three, five, maybe 10 years than what we've experienced over the last 30 years. You know, you've got, you know, the last 10 years, especially sort of prior to 2020, basically every major economy was had benign inflation. If anything, it was sort of the central banks fighting disinflation. And therefore, they had central banks had a lot of options and they were allowed to act in a coordinated manner because, you know, the global economy was behaving in a coordinated way. Looking forward, Different economies are now experiencing different levels of inflation and growth. Different levels of capital and um, and other, you know, um, major economic accounts related to their economy are are impacting how different economies are experiencing um, growth and inflation dynamics. And it's going to be harder for central banks to coordinate their actions to manage the inflation and growth dynamic. So you know, I think this inflation volatility and this um, inability of central banks to act in a coordinated manner is going to, to, to lead to a lot more fluctuation in things like um, global interest rates across different regions, global exchange rates and global growth rates. Um, which probably means that you're going to have to have an allocation to a more nimble, dynamic portfolio um, over the next decade in order to be able to achieve your long-term financial objectives. Um, In the intermediate term, I have been continuously leaning towards a more resilient economy than many economists have been uh, forecasting largely because the gargantuan amount of stimulus that was dropped directly into bank accounts in 2020, 2021 still has not nearly um, run through the financial system. There's still an enormous amount of excess savings sitting um, now, it has moved to a very large extent from consumer balance sheets to corporate balance sheets, as we sort of probably should expect, via the Kalecki equation. Um, so now we become more sensitive to business investment intentions than um, consumer whims. But there's still an enormous amount of excess savings that, that can be put to work in the economy And because corporations have such a large amount of excess savings, and it's commonly held that it's difficult to find skilled labor, the evidence seems to suggest that companies are more reluctant to to lay people off even if they have lower growth expectations. Um, And as a result, we may see persistently low unemployment, persistently higher than expected, um, wage growth and that's going to cause the fed to stay at a higher rate than expected for longer. And it's also going to complicate the tools that they use in order to determine when they should pivot and raises the likelihood that they stay higher for longer than they should have, which will lead to a deeper than expected Recession and potentially a financial crisis. What what? What are you? How do you, how does that resonate with your? Career? I
0: I think uh, for in in large part it does. It resonates with kind of how we're looking at things. I think that you know, with our being really close to kind of the sequential data as it comes out and things like that, I think that what we see is a situation where the profit pressures will eventually elicit you know a weaker labor response but i think that where you're suggesting we get to right so i think that where you're suggesting we get to where we're in a situation where inflation might be stubborn into a decline in employment with profits you know contracting and the fed if they make that hard choice of you know keeping interest rates high will be a very difficult environment to navigate. I think we agree on where we're going to get to. I think just the way we're tracking things, we see the the pressures aligning for contraction in GDP starting later this year. And so, um a lot of it a lot of the 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 gap between perhaps where you think on timing versus where we think on timing, I think just boils down to the severity of how bad earnings can get over the next two quarters. And so we we think they're gonna get decently bad, but we don't, you know, usually the you need between 15 and 25% of an earnings contraction to cause a meaningful impact on labor. And um, you know, we can't necessarily claim high certainty on that number being achieved. And so I think that you know watching that profit picture and if we get that meaningful profits contraction um we'll probably get to that point and 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 that's really like what we're watching for now because uh I think that the, the really important thing for you know and and this is more like a, a cycle alpha kind of discussion which I think is a, a separate thing but um what what you have to think about when you're when you're constructing like a strategy around the, those dynamics is that the like every alpha, you're compensated for taking out some kind of risk, right and the the risk you have to take on in this particular case is that your your tracking of the mechanics is going to pay off and so by the time uh, you know this is something I've been stressing with a little bit of getting a bit of uh, feedback about this like negative feedback about this, but I think that what you have to think about is by the time you actually see labor markets weaken, most of those opportunities in markets will already be gone. And so the risk you have to take on is that your dynamics may not play out. And that's just life, I guess. Um, But, but that, you know, those are my broad thoughts. So I don't, I don't think we actually differ that much. I think it's just a, you know, question of the relative timing and where we're going to, because I think the destination is same. Um, You know, as we wind down, Adam, I, I'm wondering, you know, I know that you guys have been really forward-looking in the sense that you guys have been prepared for a long time. Like you guys have been thinking about all these different environments and things like that. Has there been anything though, meaningfully that you felt over the last year experiencing this stagflationary nominal growth kind of environment that really changed in your process or your thinking or how you're thinking about, you know, preparing for the future?
1: We've put some time into seeing whether there's value in conditioning our signals on some, um, Major macroeconomic variables, and uh, so far, that seems to be uh, there seems to be only benefits sort of at, at the margin on that. Um, so, from a I mean, from a modeling standpoint, we're constantly looking at new sources of edge, new markets to trade, new ways of modeling, new ways to form port- portfolios, new ways to manage risk, et cetera. Um, I would have I would have said three or four months ago that I would expect equity markets to be a lot lower. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been surprised by the resilience of equity markets, but I also and not that this influences how our models trade at all. But um, but what I what I think I may have missed was just the enormous stockpile of cash on on corporate balance sheets and. Even if they don't see an opportunity for investment, without enough cash on balance sheets, you could have a major earnings recession. Mm-hmm. While companies are massively cashed up, and companies begin to implement huge buyback lines. Mm-hmm. like you know, it's 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 just an incredibly complicated dynamic to navigate. I think at the moment, yeah. And um, so, you know, I'm I'm glad that our investment decision making doesn't doesn't rely on me having to navigate it at the moment. Now I don't have, you know, we don't we don't use the, the same extent of of economic tools and, and series that, that you used. Um it's you know, very different. We we let the markets tell us what it's expecting. I, I like to say that the way we invest is kind of like um you know, you're, you're viewing the markets from a, a very large number of slightly different perspectives. You're viewing it in infrared and at the X ray spectrum and in the visible spectrum. And like you're viewing it from as many different angles as possible, but ultimately you're relying on the positioning of market participants to signal where markets are likely to go next. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's been so challenging over the Last six, eight months is that the market itself is so uncertain. It has no idea what to do or what to expect and how to position. And so it's just been largely noise traders who are dictating movements and patterns in in many markets. And that means that any strategy that relies on markets to to derive its signals. Is going to be noisier than,
0: than usual. Right. And I, I think you're also getting at, you know, I've, um, I've, I've often thought about this, like this is one of the hidden benefits of maximum diversification, right? Especially when you net out maximum diversification within one portfolio, it's almost as if you're getting the voice of, you know... To you know, just kind of put this in popular context, like you know, you're getting Warren Buffett, Ray Dalio, and George Soros to all opine on your on your portfolio at the same time, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and
1: they're not just opining, but they're you're seeing, you're you're experiencing their flows, right. right? A lot of people like they say one thing and invest some go completely differently, but but the flows and the prices don't lie, right?
0: Right. right. And yeah so i i think that that's really like a big benefit and I, I i i do understand the the challenge that 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 you're talking about in this current environment because you have so many um i think that as we talked about this this liquidity kind of infusion both into the economy and you know through fed operations has been so um complicating to you know market dynamics and also the various flows pushing markets in various ways that you do have you know market-based signal is you know kind of in in you know the confluence of factors that are kind of pushing them in opposing directions and so i think um we talked about this in a in another context but is this kind of moving you guys towards you know higher cash allocations and things like that is is that what you're seeing
1: We are seeing higher cash allocations because our models are not detecting um, market structures that that would typically indicate high-conviction trades. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, since July, August last year, on average, we've had very low gross exposure. And Mm -hmm. that just, for the most part, reflects the fact that a lot of the opportunity that we're seeing is either you've got different models kind of saying, oh, I see this, but this other model saying, oh, I see that, and kind of offsetting one another, right? Because they're viewing noise from a variety of different angles, effectively, right? And it's also for canceling each other out. Um, and, but, you know, to the effect that there's been, been noise trading, you're paying commissions and you're, you know, you're paying trading costs. And it's, so it's a bit of a slow drift lower. Right. Um, I, think, I think a lot of different strategies are waiting for there to be some direction and conviction, either on the policy front, or on the economic front, that would make at the margin, there to be some sort of clear direction over the intermediate term that will guide asset flows. Um, But as we talked to other peers, both in the the discretionary space, um, and in the systematic space, most People that I've spoken to are operating very
0: well
1: under Mm-hmm. because, from a discretionary standpoint, it's noisy and uncertain. From a systematic standpoint, the markets, are example, you get the market participants perceive it as noisy and uncertain. So this is a reasonable rate of decision.
0: Absolutely, Adam, I totally agree. Um, I think uh, I think this is a really good place for us to wrap up. Um, Adam, could you just tell us where you know interested listeners can find out about, about more about you, uh, read your research, find out about Resolve?
1: Yeah, thanks, Alan. This has been a lot of fun. Um, so I'm on Twitter at gestaltu. That's G-E-S-T-A-L-T-U, and you can find all the research we've ever published on. The categories we talked about today and a wide variety of other things at deskazol.com.
0: They're they're one of the best resources out there. Honestly, I don't know why they actually share this much stuff, but everyone should definitely go and check out their website. It's uh, it's fantastic. Adam, once again, thank you so much. This was an excellent discussion. We're gonna to have to do it again.
1: Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much. Great questions and great conversation.
0: Take care.